All right, and for the adults, uh, I realize that I'm the only thing standing between uh, fried chicken and pulled pork sandwiches, so I promise to be brief. I'll uh, keep it under an hour, okay? I promise you, promise you that. Oh, yeah. We'll see if you're still applauding at the end. Uh, pressing into our victory. Uh, this week concludes our series on First Peter. Uh, which I have titled, A Letter to the Exiles. Uh, In this series, we have explored Peter's advice to the church, and specifically advice about how to survive our exile, or that time that we experience as strangers here on earth, as we await our final destination with Christ. Uh, We have seen that to survive our exile, we must press into our salvation, press into our community, and press into our example who is Jesus Christ himself. Uh, Last week, we began looking at the concept of pressing into our suffering, which is kind of the odd one in the group. Uh, Most sermons do not encourage us to suffer, uh, but that sermon was something of a precursor to this one. Uh, Last week, we corrected a few objections about Christian suffering, uh, and we answered those objections by noting that God is more concerned about holiness than he is about our happiness. And suffering is one of the change agents that God uses to make us holy. Therefore, suffering is part of the Christian life. We also said that suffering is not something that is altogether removed from our salvation. Uh, Many times, suffering is a part of our deliverance. Uh, We looked at Noah uh, and the ark. Uh, Peter referred to uh, Noah's ark as a picture of deliverance. And we think of all the suffering that Noah endured before we could find salvation in the ark. He had to build the ark. He had to use manual labor. He was probably mocked as he was building the ark. And then he was trapped inside the ark with all these animals and his family. That probably drove him nuts at times. And he had to endure all of these things before he could experience the new life or the restored creation. We also said that physical, social, and sometimes even psychological suffering occurs for the sake of Christ. It is spiritual suffering that must be avoided, which is caused by sin, because it puts a distance between us and God and us and other people. Uh, Finally, we looked that through our good works, we can help alleviate other people's suffering. So by doing good works, which make us suffer, we help other people not suffer. And doing good is one of the major themes about how we survive our exile. And we only got a hint of our conclusion last time about the reason why we suffer at Christians. We said that pressing into our suffering allows us to press in to our victory, which is today's message. So go ahead and open your Bibles, uh, they're in front of you if you would like, to to 1 Peter chapter 4, around page 1016, uh, give or take, that'll get you in the vicinity. Uh, Take a look at 1 Peter uh, chapter 4. Uh, go ahead and look at verse uh, 12. We're going to read verses 12 and 13. Uh, so 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13. Uh, and we're going to see why uh, Peter teaches us uh, that we need to embrace our suffering in order to get to our victory. So 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 
this passage shows us that as we suffer for Christ, we actually suffer with Christ. We share in Christ's sufferings. This means that we participate with Christ in his suffering. The technical word for this idea of participation is union with Christ. Uh, We've been using the ark as a picture of salvation, Noah's ark, and we said that uh, there's different ways of thinking about salvation. You can look at it as a whole, the whole of the ark, or you can break it down and you can look at individual boards and nails and uh, even the, the... the caulk that went and hold, held the boards together, the pitch, uh, that word for pitch is the same word for atonement, right? So I think the ark is this picture that's multifaceted and teaches us about salvation. So we've been pulling apart different boards of the ark to see what is our salvation all about. Uh, one of those boards we examined was adoption, that we're adopted into the family of God. Uh, another board you could take out of salvation and examine is union with Christ, Uh, We don't use the idea of union very frequently. Uh, Kind of our modern vocabulary for that would be having a relationship with Christ or growing with Christ, maybe walking with Christ. The idea of union shows a relationship, and it's a relationship that grows. Uh, Just imagine that there are two different couples. You know, on the one hand, you have a husband and wife that are newlyweds. They've been married for maybe two or three months. Are they married? Why, of course, yes, they're married and they have a real union. But the other couple, they are celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary. Uh, Do they have a real marriage? Yes, of course they do. So both marriages are equally united, but one of those has a much deeper union because they've gone through 50 years of experience. They've gone through ups and downs together. So their union is much stronger. And so it is with us and with Jesus Christ. We are united with Jesus Christ through faith. When you repent and put your faith in Christ, why you are united. But as you suffer with him, that relationship deepens. It's not simply a matter of having time with Christ because God is eternal. So it doesn't always work the same way that our regular marriages and relationships work. So if you suffer with Christ, no matter how long you have been with Christ, you are well on your way to reaching that golden anniversary. This also reminds me of one of my friends. I just talked to him on the phone uh, earlier this week. Uh, His name is John, and he's also a minister, uh, but in New Jersey, in the Newark area. And uh, John is not from New Jersey, although he's been there as a minister for 10 years. Uh, He's from Albuquerque, uh, New Mexico. And John has four kids, and every summer, they go on a road trip from New Jersey all the way to Albuquerque, New Mexico. If you're not very good at uh, you know, geography, that's a very long way to go. And if you don't have kids, four kids you know, on the way to, uh, to Albuquerque from New Jersey is a very long trip. Uh, every year, they stop at a different national park. They went to the Rocky Mountain National Park this time, and then on the way back, they went to the Iowa State Fair, which I didn't know is the largest state fair in the country. Uh, All four of the kids and my friend John absolutely love it. Uh, His wife, not so much. Now, imagine if my friend John were to adopt a kid uh, tomorrow. He adopts this kid into his family. Well, that kid would be just as much a part of the family as his other four kids. But they don't have the same experiences together. 
one set of kids has gone through the rigors of, you know, driving and looking for a gas station and holding it when you need to go to the bathroom. And, you know, other kids that are sick and, you know, crying and, you know, going to different parks and all of that. So they've, they've grown together. They're united in a much deeper way because they have suffered through that long car ride. But the child is just as much a part of the family. So as we suffer with Christ, we actually grow in our union with Christ. And if you suffer with Christ, you will receive something. Something that is far better than the golden necklace you're going to get at the 50th wedding anniversary, and something far better than you're going to get at the Iowa uh, State Fair like a corn dog. You'll receive Christ's glory as you remain in your marriage and suffer with him. If you suffer with Christ, you are united to him and his suffering. If you are united with him and his suffering, you are united with him in his glory. Take a look at chapter 4, verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of God and of glory and of, excuse me, the Spirit of God and, let me start all, start, start, let me start 14 all over again. Sorry about that. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of power and of God rests upon you. Have you ever been insulted for being a Christian? Then rejoice because the spirit of victory is already upon you. Have you ever been mocked or shamed? Then be glad because the spirit of glory is with you. When you are insulted for the name of Christ, do not be ashamed. For the power of God is with you. It is not you that they are rejecting, but God. And while they are rejecting God, you are drawing closer to Christ in your union. When you are insulted for the sake of the church, the spirit of Christ himself is shining through you. For those who dare to insult the body of Christ cannot have love for the head. These insults are not a time for sadness. Look at Peter's commands throughout throughout this passage. Take a look at verse 12. He says, Do not be surprised when fiery trials come upon you. Don't be shocked whenever something happens. There are going to be difficulties. How are we supposed to respond? Take a look at the command in verse 13. Rejoice. Be joyful. Celebrate. Take a look at verse 16. Do not be ashamed whenever things get really, really bad. What should you do? You should glorify God. As your suffering increases, Peter tells us that we need to double down. We need to not take our bets off the table, but increase our wager to the maximum. Look at verse 19. He says, keep entrusting yourself to God while doing good. The promise of First Peter is that at the end of our exile, there is a victory. We saw this in chapter 1 where we see the promise of God coming and giving us honor, praise, and glory, 1 Peter 1.17. And he ends this letter in the same way by telling us that there is a victorious glory waiting for us. And it's a glory that has been waiting for all of creation to enjoy and throughout all of Scripture. Listen to what God tells Daniel in chapter 12. To those who are wise, they shall, they shall shine, like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness, like the stars forever and ever. What is the promise revealed in Daniel? It is that those who love wisdom and Christ 
will shine like the brightness of the sun at high noon, or like the Milky Way on a clear night. Or listen to the words of Christ to the church of Thyatira in the book of Revelation. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers, who keeps my word until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and I will even give him the morning star. What is this promise of the morning star, if not glory and power? So what does this mysterious glory that we're waiting for look like? What does it mean to shine like a star of the heaven or to possess the morning star? It looks like the glory of Christ. Think of him at the transfiguration. When Matthew 17 says that Jesus was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Or picture Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation where John says that his eyes were like the flame of fire and his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. Remember, if we are united with Christ in his suffering, then this is the glory that we are looking forward to. His glory, his radiance, his victory, his victorious glory, even down to his clothing. What do the martyrs in Revelation 6 receive? They receive white robes, rest, and eventually they will receive vengeance, but not yet. The martyrs remain unavenged because their number is not yet complete. Christ still has more robes of victorious glory to hand out to those who press into his suffering. Paul tells the Corinthians that suffering is preparing us for this weight of glory that we have waiting for us. The picture that comes to my mind is seeing an empty field and a bulldozer coming in to dig up the ground to lay a foundation. See, this land has been chosen to have a glorious palace placed on it or a fine skyscraper or something majestic like the Taj Mahal or the pyramids. But if you want to have the glory of the land filled with a building, you have to go through the suffering of digging up that ground to lay the foundation. And so it is with our suffering. It's like a backhoe that comes into our lives and digs up all the useless soil so we can have a foundation that will allow us to hold the glory that is waiting for us. Those who press into this suffering are those who are going to be able to press in to the victory. To survive our exile and reach this glory, we must be aware of a distraction of cheap glory or vain glory. Pilgrim's Progress is one of the most famous books in the English language, so I assume you know a little bit about it. Uh, if, if you don't, it's, a, it's an allegory about a man named Christian uh, who is on a pilgrimage towards heaven. Uh, and along this pilgrimage, uh, Christian must pass through the narrow way. Uh, Christ says that it is the narrow way that leads to life. So uh, Paul Bunyan pictures, or John Bunyan pictures, uh, Christian going through this little narrow crevice uh, to get to the celestial city. Uh, but there are two people from the town of vainglory, a hypocrite and a formalist, or like a, a legalist. Uh, they try to pass over the narrow way because it is too difficult. You see, they don't want true glory, uh, that victorious glory that Christ offers, so they choose vain glory. And this is one of the major temptations for all of us. You see, all of us desire glory and recognition and honor, 
And this desire is not inherently bad. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that Jesus Christ had this goal. That's how he was able to endure the cross. He was looking for his throne on the other side of his suffering. He was looking for the, the glory and the joy that he was going to receive. So desiring joy and honor and glory, they're not inherently bad things. But whenever we pursue the wrong glory, whenever we forsake the victorious glory of Christ for vanity, we fall away. Uh, philosopher and ethicist Rebecca, and I'm going to butcher her name, Rebecca Kanyitik de Young. Uh, if you just Google Rebecca de Young, you'll probably find it. Rebecca Kanyitik de Young uh, has written a lot about vanity uh, and pride, which are different. So I was working through her book, Glittering Vices, this week. Highly recommended. I just picked it up to see a little bit more about pride, and it was super convicting. So it'd be great for a study uh, in a group or for your your own. Uh, study, but uh, de Young uh, describes vainglory uh, differently than pride, and this is kind of how she describes it. She says, vainglory is the inordinate concern about what other people think of you. She says that the vainglorious person must let everyone know about their accolades and what they have achieved. Uh, one of the examples she uses is a person that has to have expensive clothes with the labels showing so that everybody knows uh, that their clothes were expensive. Another example she used were uh, the, the people that put you know, Harvard bumper stickers on their car or some prestigious university they went to on their car so that everybody knows how smart they are. She goes on to say that the, the, the vainglorious person is obsessed with what people think about them, and they're, they're drawn and addicted to social media. How many likes did you get for that picture or that post? Uh, there was a, a missionary that I met in Hong Kong who was 15 or so years older than I am, and he was actually an unlikely suspect to be addicted to social media. I remember one time he posted something, and nobody liked his comment or his picture, and you know, 20 minutes later, he'd be to get all anxious and ended up deleting the picture because nobody liked it. He was concerned of what other people thought of him. But a vainglorious person is concerned about their appearance. That's why we all buy the racks on the magazines, how we can have the perfect beach body, how we can get rid of wrinkles, how we can grow our hair back. All of these different things attract us because we care about our appearance. When I was in Hong Kong, I would, uh, there was one train I would, would take on the way to work. It was about a 30-minute uh, train ride, and uh, whenever you get on the same stop every morning at the same time, you start to notice everybody else who's getting on the same train, and there, there, was, there was one person that got on the same train as I did. We got on the same stop and got off at the same stop, you know, so 30 minutes, and as soon as this person sat down, she started putting on her makeup, and she did not finish putting on her makeup until we got off at the end of the, the train stop, so 30 minutes putting on her makeup, uh, you know, chin to forehead, everything in between, and I really couldn't tell much of a difference by the time she got off. I said, you should be reading a book. She spent, this is one-fiftieth of her day, uh, you know, putting on a, a different face. And I really couldn't tell a difference. Vainglory makes us do crazy things. And it creeps into every part of our lives. Having a perfect, tidy house. Uh, having a perfect green lawn. Uh, the worst is whenever vainglory creeps into ministry. Uh, we become perfectionists, we burn volunteers out, and programs become more important than our mission of teaching Jesus Christ crucified and risen. So vainglory is the inordinate concern about what others think of you, 
But Rebecca DeYoung describes pride as an inordinate concern about what you think of yourself. She says that pride is not so much a single sin. Like if I walk up to my brother and punch him in the face, that's a one-off sin, right? But she says that pride is actually a deeply rooted habit. Like sticking your hand in your pocket, which I've been doing since I was like three years old, or biting your nails. Pride is the same way. It is, yes, it is a sin, but it is more than a sin. It is a habit. It's something that is deep. Rebecca DeYoung says that pride is like a root that grows down deep under the surface and you can't see it. And vainglory is the fruit that appears on the tree. You see, pride is very sneaky. The fruit of pride does not always go around screaming, look at me and my accolades. The fruit of pride can also say things like, look at those people down there. I'm so much better than them. I certainly don't need their approval or their likes on social media. It even says things like, I am useless and I am worthless. Not in a sense of repentance, but in being overly concerned with oneself. The root of pride and its fruit of vainglory are deceiving, and they can keep us from our victorious glory. To find the true glory, we need a new tree with a new root. If the tree of vainglory has the root of pride, the tree of victorious glory must have a completely new root system altogether. So what is that new root system we need to have? Well, as we press into our suffering, we adapt to the new root system of humility. The root of pride must die in us along with the fruit of vainglory. But with the new roots of humility, we will obtain victorious glory as our fruit. As our fruit. Humility has been one of the themes throughout the book of 1 Peter. Uh, we saw this as we looked at angels in chapter 1, how angels long to look into humanity, to serve them and to discover their salvation. We see the humility in Jesus Christ as the Son of God himself became a human. But the incarnation was just the start of Christ's humiliation, and the crucifixion was the culmination of his humility. And as we die through humility, we are connected with Christ's humility. For what is repentance if it is not humbling ourselves before God? And two weeks ago, we looked at the hardest passage, I think, in 1 Peter. It's the section about telling everyone to be submissive. It tells all of us to submit to the government. It tells servants to submit to masters, wives to submit to husbands, and husbands to honor their wives. Fortunately, as Providence turned out, it was a children's service, so I could soften the blow. I didn't have to deal with this stuff directly. Uh, but unfortunately, all the children's teachers showed up today, and I cannot soften the blow of the final chapter in 1 Peter 5. Take a look at chapter 5, verse 5, the first part. It says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Uh-oh. Subjection popped up again. I can't get away from it this time. And to make matters worse, Peter includes that pesky word, likewise. That word likewise means we need to go all the way back to chapter 3, verse 1, where we see a likewise, where it's telling wives to submit to their husbands as slaves submit to their masters and as all Christians submit to all human institutions. And that word likewise 
connects us back to chapter 3, verse 7, where it tells husbands to honor their, their, their wives the same way wives submit to their husbands. So we see that Peter is not done telling us to be subjects. Here he tells those who are younger to be subject to the elders. Uh, this is not specifically referring to age. Uh, in chapter 5, verse 1, we see that Peter is talking about church leaders. Uh, and we have specific leaders in the church that are called elders. Sometimes they're older, but not always. Uh, Timothy was an elder uh, in the Bible, and he was young. He was a young man in age, but an elder, and people busted his chops over it for being young, as you can imagine uh, old codgers would do. Uh, but Paul tells him to don't let anybody despise your youth. Uh, you are an elder and walk according to the statutes of an elder. So Peter commands non-elders to be subject to the elders. We said that that means that uh, subjects are supposed to be subjects to someone that is greater, like a king. Chapter 2, verse 17, elaborates on being subjects and says that we're supposed to honor, love, and respect. Now, I know what the vain, glorious ones are thinking. They're thinking, oh, cool, I want to have that kind of power in the church. How do I become an elder? But the elders have a lot of responsibility in these verses, and I won't refer to each particular aspect. But there is one thing that I want to highlight that is a qualification for an elder or what the elders ought to be doing. Take a look at verse 3. Verse 3 calls elders to be examples to the flock. Where did we see the idea of example before in 1 Peter? Does anybody remember? Great, I'll tell you. So in chapter 2, verse 21, we see that Jesus Christ is the example. We talked about the idea of example. The word literally means under the script or under the grammar. It's the idea of a writing sheet. When a kid learns how to write the alphabet, they have an example that they can trace. Well, back in the olden times, they didn't have paper and printers and copiers and everything, so they would have to get a piece of leather or wood and, and write the, uh, the, the letters very deep and have grooves. So the kids would learn how to write by putting their pen or their stick in the example and tracing that groove. It's the same thing for Christ. He is an example that we press into, but it's also the case for elders, that elders are an example that you are to press into. Uh, whenever I was a kid, every once in a while, I would take something like a coin, or like a quarter, and I would get a blank piece of paper and put that piece of paper on the quarter with a, a pencil. And I'd take the pencil sideways and I would you know, uh, draw on it like this. And then eventually I would see the face of whatever president was on that coin show up on the piece of paper. It's the same type of thing or should be the same type of thing in a church. If you don't know how to live a Christian life, you should be able to go to an elder, take a piece of paper, put it on the, piece of the, the elder's life, and take your pencil over it. And when you pull that piece of paper off the elder, you should be seeing Christ, not the elder. Now, of course, Christ is the only perfect elder. None of the elders at RBC or anywhere else are perfect. But we as elders... We should be the closest thing in our community to Christ. Uh, about uh, six to eight weeks ago, I gave a devotional with uh, the elders uh, where I looked at different educational models for Christian education. Uh, there's uh, a, a couple different ones. All of them are fine, but I prefer the last of these three. Uh, one of those is the content-driven model for education. This is where we make kids memorize scripture. We make them memorize the catechism. 
those are good, but it only is going to get you so far. It's kind of a head knowledge. Maybe you don't really understand it. You just have rote memory. So to get them motivated, sometimes we refer to the, the gold star way of teaching, where we give them some outside reward. They get a gold star, they get a button, they get a fun game if they memorize the content. But even that is an external reward. We need to get them inside. We need to get in their hearts. And the best way that I've come across for thinking about how to train uh, young ones or anyone in the Christian life is that of a pilgrimage. I think of Pilgrim's Progress. It's going on a journey together. It is doing life together. So the following exercise is especially for the elders, but it's actually for everyone. We're all called to be examples. So imagine that for the last six to eight weeks, there has been a secret camera following you around, and it has been videotaping everything that you have done, the way that you interact in your business dealings, the way that you interact with your family, the way that you have devotions with your family, the way that you have devotions with yourself, the way that you uh, conduct your diet and your yard work and everything. And they compile all that footage for six to eight weeks. And then they give it to a group of 100 students that are learning how to be a Christian, to follow the life of Christ. And they see that video footage compiled down and they say, okay, go and do this. Follow this person's life. Ask yourself, where would they go? Of course, nobody is perfect, but what is the trajectory that they would be on? Would they be growing closer to Christ? Would they be living like Christ? Would they be in turn making examples of Christ to follow or not? That's an issue for us to repent of, especially the elders, myself included. I'm an elder. We need to be examples, which is a serious call because First Peter says you have two examples. You have Christ and you have elders. There was a great Connecticut pastor that lived about 300 years ago named Jonathan Edwards. Whenever Jonathan Edwards was, I believe, 19 years old, he made a resolution that he was going to be the greatest Christian alive. And he didn't do this so that he could get a trophy at the, the, the Emmys of pastors or anything like that. But he said, no, that any time uh, that, that we're alive on earth, there is one Christian who is the most like Jesus Christ out of anyone. Somebody has to be most like Christ. So Jonathan Edwards resolved that he was going to be the one that is most like Jesus Christ. If you know anything about Jonathan Edwards, he was a great man, and his works are studied by all sorts of people today. Uh, Yale University has a center dedicated to Jonathan Edwards' studies. And there's also conservative uh, groups that publish his work. So he's well-known all over the place. At the end of his life, whenever people were acknowledging his accomplishments and his writings, he called them all filthy rags, rubbish, and dung. He was not a perfect elder or a perfect church leader. But he was one that could say in a clear conscience, follow me and I will get you closer to Christ. You see, Edwards knew that if he found any vain glory in his accomplishments, he himself would fall into pride. So Peter concludes this section about elders and those who need to subject themselves to elders. He concludes with this, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He continues with 1 Peter 5, 8. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Like a hungry lion, the devil lurks 
and he searches for those who love vainglory rather than victorious glory. The devil is seeking those who are proud rather than humble so that he can pounce upon them. Now, the Bible doesn't say that much about the devil, believe it or not. There's uh, a lot of myths circulating. Uh, one of the things that popped up in the men's group this week is the, the name Lucifer. Uh, Lucifer is not in the ESV Bible. It's in the King James. It was popularized um, uh, by a poem, who's uh, Milton, I think. Uh, but but it, it's just a translation of some, of some bright light. It is not his specific name. But the concrete pictures that we have of the devil is that he's a lion looking for those who are proud. We also see that he's a serpent who is trying to deceive. But one of his main roles is that he is an accuser. You see this in the prophet Zechariah, whenever he is accusing the high priest, I believe his name is Joshua, for sinning. And we see this in the book of Revelation where he still accuses today. Whenever we are proud and vainglorious, we start to accuse other people. We end up causing divisions and we keep divisions alive, and we resist leadership. I do not think that I need to tell you this, but I will anyway. This is the opposite of Jesus Christ. The devil is a lion that accuses, but Jesus Christ is a greater lion. He is the lion of Judah, a lion that forgives, a lion that restores, a lion that loves, and a lion that has conquered the devil. The devil is a serpent that causes divisions. Christ is the serpent that was raised up in the wilderness. And when he was lifted up, everyone looked to him to find healing and salvation. And as we exalt Jesus Christ, we will in turn be examples and draw people to him. The devil is the perfect image of pride, the perfect image of a lover of vain glory. But Christ is the image of the invisible God and the perfect image of humility. For he is not only a lion, but he gladly comes as a lamb. Yes, he is the majestic conquering lion, but he is also the lamb who was slain for us and our salvation. As we press into Christ the lamb, we will certainly experience suffering, but we will certainly be experienced certainly be united, excuse me, to Jesus Christ. At the proper time, Christ the lion will exalt us. He will exalt us above that vanity, uh, the vanity of the devil and the vanity of the world and the vanity of our flesh. And he will even exalt us over those who mock us. Christ the lion will bestow his own glory upon us, the morning star, our own white robe, an unfading crown of glory, a crown of victory from the hand of him who has all things. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for the victory that you have given us through Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord God, that you would tear up all of the roots of pride in our lives, that you would pull down all the inclinations for vanity and vain glory. We pray, Lord God, that you would give us the morning star, but not before we have endured suffering that you have ordained us to. We pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen.